Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Home is where I am, and I grew up in a culture where you took care of your people. What does it take to be a caretaker for a father with dementia? How does a daughter let go of her identity as protected daddy's girl so that she can become her father's steadfast protector? And does that new role challenge her relationship with her own daughters? How does caring for others make us socially healthy human beings? Sharice Fisher, book editor and agent, is the primary caretaker for her father who has dementia. In this candid interview, she is here with her answers to these questions and much more. I was telling someone yesterday that my father now in, in his room, if he needs something, uh, like two days ago, he started saying, Aunt G, Aunt G, Aunt G, I need you. You know, and Aunt G is his father's aunt. So it's his great aunt who he was raised with. And so it's so powerful how he, as he's absolutely returning to a child's state, and I'm absolutely becoming his mother. Because he went to live with Aunt G. And I asked him, I said, when did you go to live with Aunt G? And he said, I don't know. I was very young. It was before school. So he might have been three or four. His mother, uh, my grandmother, was 16 when she had him. And they just felt that she was too young to raise a child. And so they sent her to live with this relative who had more money who may or may not have been lesbian. That's another story. She raised a whole bunch of kids that were not hers. She never had children. She never married. But she was a home that took in a lot of children. And she had money because her siblings in the 1910s and the 1920s and the 1930s had already immigrated to New York. They were in Harlem. They had businesses set up in Harlem. And so they would send her money back home. Plus she had a huge bakery. You know, my father's diabetic, honey, but honey, he, he always wants a piece of bread and he always wants a little cake. So, because that's how he grew up. And so it's hard, you know, when you're taking care of somebody who is diabetic, who you have to make these decisions about what they're going to eat right? You know, that are good for them. And he'll be like, can I just have a little piece of cake? You know, and I know that this little piece of cake is just a comfort. And I know, you know, he tells me a million stories about being a kid and they had like a a stone bakery in the yard, right? So it was, you know, and you had the fire and the hearth. And so you would bake and then you would take it out of the, and you would leave them on sort of like a stoop so that the cakes can cool before you could take them to the market. My father's like, you know how many beatings I got for eating that cake as it was cooling, you know? So so I'm in this stage with him where I see my grandmother always says, once a man, twice a child. And he has really returned to this, child state you know so when he was calling me on g i just i don't even resist any of that anymore i just recognize it for what it is that he is returning to this state of 
childhood and vulnerability and, you know, just take care of me. How did you find yourself in the role of caretaker? So my father had a stroke in March of 2018. And he, at the time, was living in a house that he'd owned for a long time. He had a second wife who he had since divorced, but they were still living in the same house. It was a four-family house, and he was living in one of the apartments. And she was living in one of the apartments with her daughter, who is my father's daughter, um, who is like 23, 24. So I was working and I got a telephone call from my um, half sister saying that uh, daddy, we found daddy on the ground this morning. He's refusing to go to the hospital, but we got him onto the couch. So I have keys to his apartment. I went, I saw, I found him on the couch and he was like, oh, Sharice, <laughs> how did you know to find me here? I was like, you're in your living room, daddy. And he was like, no, I'm not. I'm in the hospital. I'm at the clinic. He said, I'm at the clinic. I'm at the clinic. My car is, he says, where's my car? So he was very disoriented. So I had to wait for my sister to come back so that we could literally carry him up the stairs, pile him into the car, took him to the hospital where they said that he had had a stroke. And he was in the hospital for a good week, week and a half. And they found a, uh, then he went to like a, what it, like a, a rehab place, not a long-term, but a short-term rehab place. And then from there, he went to a longer term. So I just sort of like flowed into the role, really. And then he came home and I was going back and forth making meals for him because honey my father is like so old school West Indian man I don't think he know how to make a cup of tea I really don't you know like he loves a cup of tea but boil water I don't know if he's ever done it right so you know the side story of this is that his ex-wife was not being at all helpful and was actually being very obtrusive and her daughter who I suppose is technically my sister was also being not um, very helpful and not to say that she doesn't adore her father, which she does, but to say that she's just, you know, a millennial. <laughs> no, just a young person who, who has her whole life. You know, I remember at a certain point, daddy says, well, you know, first of all, about my father who I adore, like there's nothing I can do wrong for him. And he's like that with all of his children. Anyway, um, so I fell into the role, you know, I have an older brother who lives in like oh, far away and I grew up in a culture where you took care of your people. You know, my grandmother had been living with my aunt for 15, 20 years. So it really wasn't a question for me. Um, I wanted him to have his own independence and I tried that, but as I saw him, or as I saw the dementia develop, I just knew what I had to do. And it's so, and I'm so grateful because there were many people who said, Sharice, you need to put him in a home. What was your answer to that? Uh, what kind of home? Home is where I am. Like, I can't, I cannot do that. And I just felt like this would all work out. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I saw my aunt do it with my grandmother for so many years, 
you know, and, and we had nursing aides who came in and helped. I was just like, I'm going to get help for him and it's just going to be all fine. Uh, but I couldn't calculate actually putting him into a home. And I'm so grateful I didn't because he moved in with me in November and then the quarantine hit in March. And everyone that, we, almost everyone that we know personally who died from COVID died in a nursing home. And some of it is because they caught COVID in the nursing home. I mean, but I think that also a big part of it is that they couldn't see their loved ones for months. You know, I mean, so this idea that my father would be somewhere where I would not be able, allowed to come and see him when this virus is running rampant throughout the earth, none of that was comfortable. So I'm actually very, very grateful that he lives with me. Um, I absolutely believe that had I put him in a home, had I really actually figured out a way to do that, I'm sure he would be dead. What I'm very keenly aware of these days is that it is a huge sacrifice for my daughters. I really thought that um, we were going to have this beautiful multi-generational home where they would learn in the way that I did growing up how to take care of your old people, right? And that they would not, I didn't expect them to do the like you know the diaper work and that sort of thing but you know to check on grandpa to give grandpa you know his tea and that sort of thing so they could a have a grandfather which i didn't really quite have um so that was my fantasy it's not my reality you know i think my younger daughter has a more of a she has a more kind of maternal a natural maternal instinct you know, where she takes care of people, although she's also extremely bossy. So she will help with grandpa, whereas the older daughter is like, I don't understand, you know, that old man in that room, like she, she's not at all interested, um, which was a surprise to me. So how are you dealing with it? I'm allowing her to process it the way that she does. I didn't want to pressure her into some kind of domestic role that she just was not willing to accept. So I'm kind of like kind of respecting her ability to say, no, this is, I'm not, you made this choice <laughs> for yourself and I'm not cloak. I'm not putting the cloak on, you know, I've had to let that go. I've had to recognize that this was my decision and take responsibility for that decision by taking care of him. Now, do I hope that this act of generosity or this act of sacrifice or this just, you know, this process of caring for someone else is trickling into their mental. Yes. <laughs> I'm hoping that it just, it will fall in to, for them. And as they grow older, they will recognize our mother was this and let me take that part of her or not. So in being able to respect where your daughters are in their journey, in their development, in their relationship with relating to family and relating to changes. Have you learned anything more about yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Have I learned more? I mean, I, I think that the experience has shown me what I am capable of doing. I, you know, many, many along this journey, I have had in my head these boundaries where it's like, well, this I'm not going to do. Well, that I'm not going to do. Well, when it gets to this, I'm not going to do that, <laughs> right? But now I do them all, you know, specifically around his penis. Can we talk plainly? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Early on in this process, I was like, I will not see his penis. I will not touch his penis. I will not wash his penis. You know, that type of thing. Because I'm his daughter. Like, that's biblically wrong. <laughs> like, in my head, right? Mm-hmm. But that has completely left the building. You know, now I diaper him, I clean him up, I bathe him completely. So I have learned what, that I am fully capable of doing what needs to be done when it's called for. I have also learned that I can say no to certain things and I can step away from certain things. So in the very beginning of him living with me, because incontinence is a part of his dementia, I was like mopping his floor every single day. I was changing his sheets every two hours. I was washing all of the sheets on my own. You know, it was just like constant. And I recognize like, you actually cannot maintain this. So how are we going to work with this in a way that is more doable for you. And that's when I started, I had this eureka moment. I was like, you know what? Somebody else can wash these sheets. That was huge for me. (laughs) I can take these sheets, put them in my car, drop them off, and somebody will return them to me, all lovely, clean, and folded. You know, that was actually funny enough. That was a part of how I got to that Eureka moment was my kids because I would wash the clothes. I would wash the sheets and then I would be like, help me fold, honey. Helping me fold was like you. I don't know what I was asking them to do the way they carried on. They were like, what? Well, whose turn is it? Because I know I did it yesterday. Did you do it yesterday? Who did it? Whose turn is it? And I was like, listen. Mm just help me fold the sheet. Like we have to calculate a whole spreadsheet over who did it for the past four weeks. (laughs) And Lorman, the older one was just like, I don't even know why you're bothering to fold these sheets because you're going to wash them tomorrow. And we're going to be back to folding the same sheets tomorrow. But that is how I started to think about like, she's not choosing to be a domestic goddess. She, this is not her choice. And yes, I can have, this argument for the lack of a better word, or I can have this resistance from her and I could push through her resistance on folding these sheets with me every single day. But why am I preparing to do that? What does it really mean that she does not want to fold these sheets? Um, She sort of sees it as something to be done over and over and over again that has no resolution, you know, but that is exactly what caretaking is. It is doing something over and over and over again for me, I had to sort of ground into the bigger sense of purpose, the bigger picture that I am getting out of caring for this man who has cared for me his whole life. And she just doesn't have the maturity to, to make, to process all of that, but I do. So, 
So besides delegating, which is what I'm hearing, responsibility so that you can take some of the load off of yourself, what are other ways that you're maintaining your caretaking role as a sustainable part of your life? That's a good question. Um, I am learning through quarantine the quarantine experience is that there's value in rest. There's value in rest. I don't think I knew that before. I'm kind of, you know, I'm a book editor and so, and I'm a book agent and pulling an all nighter or near all nighter on something is really very simple for me to do. Working until the work is done has been sort of my code of behavior for my whole life. Now I recognize more and more. I think, you know, it's weird, right? Because there's this, there's this quarantine situation that is coinciding with this caretaking of my father. So who knows which came first, right? The, um, or how both of these things are influencing each other. They're all kind of mashed up. But um, I've learned rest. I've learned that, oh, I'm going to sit down. I have a list of things that I want to do today. I'm going to look at that list. I'm going to take away four of those things and it's going to be okay. And when I I have made my bedroom, although clearly my makeup case, clearly there are people all up in my bedroom when they're not supposed (laughs) to be, but I have tried to make my bedroom just this like oasis, you know, So I have my essential oils in there. I have my crystals and my stones in there. You know, it is always super, super clean, you know, because when I go in there and I shut that door, I go in there and I shut that door. I will go every night. I say to my father who sleeps a lot during the day. And so he's up at night. I'm like, your daughter is going to sleep. (laughs) Don't call me. You know what Mm. I mean? And I realized, like, you know, Sharice, you can wake up first thing in the morning and go into his room and check on him. Or you could wake up in the morning, you can get yourself together, you can take your shower, you can do that, right? You might be adding 20 to 30 minutes before you're checking in on him. But then when you do go and check in on him, you're prepared for whatever it's going to be. And it's not defining your day from the beginning. It's just part of your day. If I went into his room first thing in the morning, then I would be reacting to the sheets need changed, this needs done, that needs done, etc. But now I sort of handle Sharice, get her a cup of tea, you know, and do all of that, which adds time between time I go into the room to see him. But when I go into the room to see him, I am prepared for whatever I'm going to meet there. I was just listening to you and going, would I have the strength to do all of that? Would. would I have the strength? Would I? Yep, you would. If you made up your mind to do it. If you make up your mind to do it, the strength comes. The strength comes. <laughs> if you make up your mind to do it. The strength comes, the abilities come, the capacity comes. Like your capacity grows to your mindset, right? So with my sister, there was one point where I said to her, I asked her to make sure he got his dinner because I couldn't give him his dinner one particular night. And the next morning I came in and he hadn't eaten. Charles Charisse was hot. And I said, because a diabetic can't be skipping nobody's meals, right? 
so I said to her, what happened? And she's like, well, I was trying to give him some food that mommy made, but he didn't want to eat that. And, you know, I don't cook, so. <laughs> I should have seen your face. But, um, but I just thought to myself, but if your mindset was, my father needs to eat dinner, you would have figured out a way. I ain't saying you're going to turn into Julia Childs, but you could sure get into your car and drive down a block and pick him up some rice and peas and, and carrot foot. Like you, you know, there's always, there's always an ability to do something. It's just like where your mind has to be. I'm going to ask you about four emotions because I want to talk about emotional intelligence. In other words, being able to express these emotions appropriately mm-hmm understanding these emotions in other people, having compassion for those around you, being flexible. Okay. So the first emotion that I would like to hear about, I'm curious about from you is grief. I'm thinking about what grief is. Grief. Ooh, child, you know what you're trying to do, Nadine, make me cry. <laughs> um, I think grief, what is the grief that I'm feeling? Wow, good question. I mean, I think that you grieve change. I think change is a letting go of certain things. And I think that the process of grieving for those things is probably very healthy. I don't know if I've spent that much time being really consciously aware of grieving. But as you say that word, and as I think about it, of course, a lot of stuff comes up, right? A lot of emotion comes up because I have to be, I must be grieving something. My father was very steady as a father, as a husband, not so much, but, (laughs) but as a father, you know, one of my favorite recent stories of him is I, I was driving my daughters to school and I think I had like a flat tire or something. And I called him. If I have any issue with my car, it don't matter how many husbands I have. It don't matter whose car it is. It don't, like I'm calling my daddy and he's my daddy. He's not my father. He's not my dad. He's my daddy. So I called him and he was like, well, where are you? And he had a AAA card. So he left where he was to come down to Manhattan so that I could be there for AAA. He could be there when AAA got there. They towed the car to the Honda dealer. It ended up being like one o'clock at night by that time. And there he was waiting for me. I don't know how long he was there waiting, but he was waiting in order to take me home. He was always that person. For me, I grieve having that complete, support system that I can call at any time. You know how people have, like, they talk about their ride or die. Like my father, it was literally my ride or die. You know, my mother is also very reliable, but she got to talk about it, child. She got, (laughs) you can call my mother in the middle of the night and she will talk about it the whole way, come to get you, right? Whereas my father's be like, no problem. And he'll just come. It was such an unconditional ride or die. You know, Mm. that was just beautiful. So I grieve that, you know, I had, I really have pulled myself into some grown woman, ugly underwear. 
in order, like making decisions and not turning back from them in order to take care of him. While I'm grieving that he's not this crutch for me, I at the same time celebrate how it has forced me into a form of adulthood, which is actually very empowering. How about anger? Oh, yeah. Well, Sharice was very angry at his former wife. She is very angry. I got to talk about myself in third person about how angry I am. Because in I discovered the amount of meanness that she has towards my father. And I feel that nothing good is going to come to her because of the way she's treated my father and because of the way she treated me. So, yeah, so I'm angry about that. I'm not angry about anything towards my father. I guess I would be angry that he made certain life choices that have put him in certain situations. Hard, honey. Let me tell you something. For a man who was as good looking as my father was and still is for his entire life, honey, women, let me tell you, there are two types of women I meet in this world. Women who, are in, who were in love with my father and women who were in love with my father's brother. Those are the only adult women I have ever met in my life, <laughs> period. They were so good looking, so charming, so whatever. And all the women my father done seduce off and this and that and the other. I always think about this. When you wanna talk about love? It's a really important lesson for men because like all those women and none of them are here to take care of them now, right? None. You know, I think that men get caught up in bachelorhood and this and that, and they get caught up in some of that stuff, but they don't invest in making committed relationships with women. And so, you know, who do they turn to? Their daughters, if they're lucky to have one. How about joy? Oh, joy. Joy has been hard to come by, child. I have a friend who has so many parallels with my father. And when I spend time with him, I feel as though I'm with a younger version of my father. And that always makes me very happy and joyful. You know, I feel joyful about being able to laugh with my father. You know, even when he's being quirky or if he's saying something crazy, it's just great that he is able to laugh with me. I was at my chiropractor just before uh, quarantine and I was telling him, I said, well, my father lives with me. And he says, oh, you're so lucky. He says, the only conversations I have with my father are in my dreams. And that's joy enough, like, to be able to appreciate that, to realize, like, I have a dad who is here, who I can talk to. Or when he sees my mother. So my parents divorced when I was 20, 19, something like that. And, you know, they have lived this whole life in terms of co-parenting and all this stuff, right? And so my mother will like, you know, how is brother Gabriel? That's what she calls him. How is brother Gabriel? And I was like, oh, he's this, he's that. And she's like, well, I made him some soup. So you have to come and pick up soup for him, you know, and I bring him the soup. Right. And so I'd say, I said, my mother made the soup for you. And he was like, Diana made it for me. I said, yes. He says, Oh, wonderful. 
And then he would drink the whole thing of soup. And he was like, you must tell her that I'm so grateful for the soup. Like they have this whole like <laughs> sweet thing. I have both of them. And they are, they're able to be in the same room. They're able to, he is able to flirt with her. Diana doesn't flirt. <laughs> Except when she's making him soup. I suppose that's its version of flirtation, right? You know, just the idea that they're able to enjoy each other and had this life together that produced me and my children is, is a moment, moments of joy. We have one more emotion. We do. The emotion, love. I do love my children as I love my father, but I can have infinite patience with my father. And I haven't, and I don't have infinite patience with my girls. So what does that mean? What am I teaching them? What, what, is, what is the dynamic that's working in that scenario? Is it because he's a man and I've been breastfed on patriarchy, right? <laughs> you know, like, is that what this is? So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, love and what it's, where it stretches and where it, it fails, love never fails, but how we fail to be present and patient and open with love and unconditional with love. I think that what Nina and Lauren were sort of saying was that you have this unconditional love for grandpa and your love for us, at least the way you show the love for us, is based on our behavior and our ability to do what you want us to do. Many years ago, Nelson George was one of my, he's an author, and he was one of my authors when I was at Simon & Schuster. I remember having sushi. We were in a sushi restaurant eating lunch. I think it might have been the first time. And I said something like, yeah, I'm a big daddy's girl. And he says, oh. It means that you like men and that you can be easily, what did he say? I'm trying to remember what he said, but he was basically saying, like, you fall in love easily. Daddy's girls fall in love easily. And I, you know, it stuck with me because I do have this expect, like I go into any romantic interaction with the assumption that they're going to treat me incredibly well. Hmm. And so sometimes that has resulted in me not seeing red flags. And it's not conscious and I'm super independent and all that stuff strong black woman, yada, 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 yada. But I do fall in love easily. And, and when Nelson said that to me, oh, you like men and you probably fall in love very easily. Because I don't have any, I don't have any like walls up against men because my father was just like completely loving and adoring of me. So yeah, my father, in terms of love, my father's the best boyfriend I ever had. I do love being able to take care of him. There are certainly times when it's very tiring. And there are days when I'm like, oh, child, it'd be nice for me to sit up in a hotel somewhere and not get up <clears throat> and make his breakfast and make his lunch and make his dinner. But I also just see it as a part of life. That is how life has carved, life has carved itself into this shape for me right now. It's not going to be forever. Nothing's forever, Nadine. Mm. You know, you know. When you have kids, mm. you know, you have like kids in their 20s. My kids are 10 and 11, but I remember my kids being four months old. 
you know? And what got me through every stage of parenting with them was like, it's not going to last forever. It's not going to always be. You're not going to always lose sleep. Everything changed. This change is a part of it. So that's a great tip. Remembering that nothing lasts forever. Do you have other tips (laughs) for caretakers? Is that a tip? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nothing. Yeah. Because, right? Because if, if things are always changing, be where you are fully because it's going to change. And then, you know, it will be something else that you will have to learn how to adapt to. I mean, my, my aunt took care of my grandmother for 15 years. 15 years was a long time. It wasn't forever. I don't know. What else? What other tips do I have? You know, learning how to talk to people about it, learning how to sort of seek resources about it. I mean, somebody would say to me, I was like, God, you know, I don't know how to... You know, when I would walk into the apartment, although this apartment is super large, like when he would soil his sheets, this whole episode is about urine. Um, when he would soil my <laughs> she- the sheets, you would smell the urine when you walked into the apartment. And I hated that. And I was like, how am I doing this and that? Yeah, and then a, f- a good friend of mine, Embalia Singley, she, she said, you need baking powder or baking soda? Baking soda. And sprinkle it in between the sheets totally Mm. works speak to people about what you're going through and let them offer you the gift that god's given them you know you don't get messages from god unless you're opening yourself up to other people talking to people and you know and stepping out of whatever shame spiral you might have hooked on to Do you have a question for me? What has this experience of talking to other people have done for you? Thank you for that question. It's brilliant. I get to be a podcaster and I get to use this platform responsibly. Mm. I get to learn. I'm a geek. (laughs) I'm such a nerd. And I didn't love education, but I love learning. I am a curious person. And so what a treat to be able to talk to people globally about things I'm curious about and that I'd like to gift my listeners to learn about as well. I get to take myself and other people on this wonderful journey. And you know what? At the end of the day, it makes me a better person. Yeah. Yeah. And better in what way? I'm a better communicator because of this. I'm a better listener because of this. I have more ability and am actively cultivating empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I was, I, some, you know, as a book editor, someone recently made me aware that I have a huge capacity for empathy and I use it in my editing of other people's work. And I never thought about that. But then I start to think, because one, one of the things that I try to do as an editor is to sort of sink into the writer's thoughts and goals. So I can like help them maximize or magnify or make more clear what they want to do. But that, there, that is an ability to sort of, you know, empathy is a part of that process. Your energy is so beautiful, Nadine. 
Thank you very much, as is yours. It's so easy. It's so open. It's so um, reflective. It's really reminding me of how sometimes I do have some clients who'll say, but do you like it? <laughs> like if I'm going through something and I'm like, let's change this or let's look at that. or blah, 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 blah. And I'm sort of like, well, I obviously like it. No, you can actually spend the time to express the admiration, express the concern, express the fondness because it's all there, right? So we don't have to lead with the criticism. We can lead with the love. And I find that you're very much like that. And I appreciate that about you. Thank you for that, for role modeling that for me. Thank you for saying that and noticing it. So I have one more question. What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? It's an energy in your body. It's, it's a sense of feeling as though there's nothing. Like I, I identify pain as like a point in your body where something isn't flowing through. You know, there's good energy that's in your head that's flowing through, good thoughts that are flowing through and flowing in and out. There is the ability to move your body, meaning that all these things are just allowing everything to move together and in a flow. So when I have, you know, when I first moved into this apartment with my father, I had this like pain in my shoulder. And now, like, if I feel really stressed, <laughs> what will stop me is that I will feel something in that same shoulder. So I know that, like, when I am having an emotional reaction, overreaction to something, that something is going to get stuck. You know, it's about a flow, a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual flow. I like that. Thank you. And now it's time for the Mindful Minute. Caring for an ailing parent is a major shift in the parent-child relationship. It is physically, mentally, and emotionally challenging. Meeting those challenges may lead to personal neglect. So here are three questions to consider so that you can take good care of yourself and be your best as a caregiver. What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? What are you willing to say yes to? And what are you willing to say no to? If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. And are you interested in starting or maintaining a yoga practice at home? I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. You're touching lives. You are much appreciated for that. What you do is more than teach a yoga class. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals, my daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass, yours truly on percussion, and produced by Tim Buell. Thanks for being here. See you next time.